Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we have a thankful intro and play some promos. We travel down the rabbit hole to escape prohibition, but find ourselves censored when we hit the ground. This is Governing Censorship. Woman, woman, tell me your name, let me have my life reclaimed. Matt, it's been um, a while since we've been together. Yeah, it seems like it's been uh, forever and ever. We came up for that impromptu porch session so that I could grab the microphone, but other than that, I've just been communicating with you via text. I know. Um, Well, you know, life is... So what I'm not going to do is talk about how busy our lives are, and what I'm not going to do is talk about how much work I've been putting into my mother-in-law's house, and what I'm not going to do is talk about how much schoolwork... I've been doing. So I'm not going to talk about those things. Is, isn't that like the Trump like syllogism or whatever that we did on the, uh, the satire hey, episode? You caught me. Yeah. yeah well, I got you, you, know, you know, I think, uh, you know, we could go back and listen to the art of satire. That's a good episode. <laughs> That's, That's good our one. last full episode that yeah, we have. It, I like, know. And it seems like forever. So like, why don't you just quickly tell them where we're recording from? Uh, we're actually recording uh, in the, in an unfinished, uh, part of the basement of my, uh, my wife's new, um, my, my, my wife's mother, mother's new home, that it was a mouthful. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, my, my mother-in-law's new home and we're in the unfinished part of the basement, um, because my house is just kind of chaotic and busy and noisy right now. So we're here and it's like, you know, impromptu, it we're, it's going to work out well. Yeah. It's like when we were setting up the blankets on the wall, because of course we're setting up blankets yeah, on the wall. Yeah. Um, we were thinking like, Hey, maybe this is our new studio. So maybe, we'll, maybe we'll she see. might, may, maybe we could rent out a space. Maybe, uh, don't tell her this one's been published so she doesn't hear that. And you can ask her in a better way than we actually, it on the podcast. <laughs> we actually bought her an iPad oh, uh, recently. Uh-oh. And, um, obviously the first thing I did, one of the first things I did on it was subscribe her to our podcast on did, the podcast app on the iPad. Did you download all our episodes uh, of as well? Course. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, she said that she would listen, that she would actually listen in. Yeah. So we'll it's see. scary. There's uh, some members of Mel's family that listen to the podcast and I don't really know who it is. So I'm going to find out in Christmas time. <laughs> uh, but for our listeners, uh, welcome. This is semi-intellectual musings. I'm Philip Remo. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And there's been a lot going on with the show recently, folks, for those of you who have been with us for a little while and those of you who are new, uh, over the past month, and it's only, we're only halfway through the month, we have been featured on Two Pods a Day, which is an excellent month-long campaign that features two indie podcasts every day for 30 days throughout the month of October. Uh, I had an interview last week with The Podcaster's Life, so Alexander Lauren, which went fabulously Matt, you have some interviews coming up as well. Yeah, I'm actually going to be interviewed by the same person on Sunday. And then uh, I'm also being interviewed by uh, Rhett um, on uh, Friday. Um, I forgot to look up all the names of the podcast, but he has a podcast network as well. Yeah, the Brain Trust Bros. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's actually Friday is my very first interview ever. I've conducted interviews, but now I'm going to be the interviewee. So that's exciting. And we have been asked to be podcast judges in a podcast competition that will be happening sometime in the near future at Carleton University. Um, I'm really excited about setting that up. That, yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun walking undergrads through how to set up a podcast, recording an episode, getting it out there, and then doing like a people's choice kind of competition. Yeah, I know. We're going to have to figure out how we uh, quote unquote judge. And um, I actually did write down uh, Rhett's uh, um, I knew uh, podcast did, yeah. network. Uh, it's the Brain Trust Brothers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah we all know and that. And we've got bros here, so. It's bros, yeah. yeah. Brain trust bros. Brain trust bros. That's yeah. a better uh, name for it. Okay, but, <laughs> okay, before we move on, though, but I think uh, we could and we should support his um, efforts to raise funds to raise awareness mm. around breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, he's selling t-shirts for 20 bucks American. It's a going to a good cause, but reach out to him, subscribe to the brain trust bros channel. You yeah. know, this has now turned into a big plug for him, but whatever, whatever. I mean, it's obviously a good cause. And if he, he's really active on Facebook as well. So if you look at either of our profiles, you'll see a lot of likes from him and stuff. So you can find him that way as well. Matt, what else happened to you recently? Okay. So Evan, uh, past guest, uh, Evan with Ferguson. all his, all his awesome recommendations. Uh, he works at uh, the library at Carleton, so he uh, can find some really good books, and he gave me a really good one. It's um, a piece of social science fiction from the Soviet Union. It uh, is called, um, there's two books. In it. One is called Roadside Picnic, and the other is Tale of the Troika. The Troika. The Troika. Very interesting. Yeah, and it's, um, oh man, uh, wow, I can't even pronounce the last names. I'm just yeah. going to recommend that you look into it. Yeah. Um, so what I really like about these two um, novellas, the first one is like straight science fiction. It's uh, basically like an alien has uh, species has landed on five different places around the world and they just left a whole bunch of crap behind. And all this crap is like alien technology and people go in and grab it and stuff. So it's more straight science fiction. And then the second uh, novella is more satirical, politically satirical. It's about the Soviet system and the ridiculousness of the bureaucracy. And it's almost like... Uh, Kafka-esque, actually. Oh, neat. It's very, like, it's hard to follow, and I have to reread pages, but it's like a masterpiece. And I n- haven't read uh, Soviet writers, actually. I'm a bit right. of a Russophile um, when it comes to, like, their uh, their books and literature. But um, this has been a bit of an eye-opener for me, and I highly recommend it. I'll throw um, some links up so that you have yep. the author's names and stuff. No, this isn't a recommendation section, but thanks no. for bringing it in. It ties in nicely to our last full episode, The Art of Satire. And it ties into this episode uh, where we're going to be talking about censorship, uh, banning of art and yeah. uh, works, books, for example, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But before we get into the episode, I, and I think Matt will agree, wanted to thank some folks who have been really nice uh, lately airing our promo. Mm. Um, so the first one is a podcast called Is Anyone There? It's a fictional podcast about a zombie apocalypse. Uh, Zach and Alex are the only survivors so this kind of happens after the Mayan calendar reveals that zombies are coming to take us. Oh, really? Oh, that's an interesting and, take. <laughs> um, it's hilarious. They they have a bunch of episodes already cool. up, um, great sound effects. And the dynamic between the two is is just out of this world. Yeah, or I've listened yeah. to a couple of episodes. It's very innovative. Yeah. So it's really fun. And uh, we're going to be featured on it. What? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah uh, we're both really looking forward oh, to it. Oh, this is so, yeah, Matt and I have been... Um, scripting uh, a few special things and i, I don't want to give brainstorming a few ideas oh, oh sorry nice one. <laughs> and as if uh, the longtime listeners will know that i'm terrified of zombies yeah. so like we're going to do something like super creative yeah. with this and um it's actually going to be really fun and so we're going to release these things just in time for halloween so stay tuned for a crossover episode with is anyone there but to wet your whistle and to get your brains Clicking or clocking or clucking brains, or clicking. Uh, here's a promo from them. December 21st, 2012. 
the zombie infestation sweeps across the globe. Nearly the entire human race is destroyed by the onslaught of undead, leaving a dwindling population to suffer in the wake of chaos and horror that is the apocalypse. Only two men can save all of humanity. Action. Puppet time. Is anyone there? A weekly podcast from the undead filled wasteland that they call home. Keep updating, keep going. Uh, being a little dramatic here. Tune in to the Is Anyone There podcast. It may save your life. So the next folks that we wanted to thank are from a podcast called Damn Girl. And uh, they aired our podcast and they've been really kind of engaged with uh, me on Twitter anyway, answering some really profound questions uh but the podcast are uh three biracial sisters from dallas uh they gather around and reminisce bitch rant and rave about everything from politics to spirits uh you can tune in each week on and you'll you're going to be on the edge of your seat and you know i'm kind of reading this off of their website description because i want to get it right but aaron is the oldest eldest oldest or eldest yeah, both. Both. Uh, sister. Uh, she's all about wine and cheese in summer. Oh, and, fun. Yeah. And uh, interested in pop culture, sports, and music. Cool. Uh, Megan is the middle sister. Uh, she's the free spirit of the family. She's got uh, Megan's so spiritual corner, uh, health updates, and the latest on the Trump administration is going to get us killed. Oh, that sounds so awesome. So she talks about politics. Megan seems like kind of Ma- my Ma- own Megan is there. pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, now there's also Kristen and she's the youngest. She's the, you know, the strange one. Uh, <laughs> they always, always are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she likes dogs. Dogs. She'll talk about dogs and how much she loves them and uh, pretty much anything else. Oh, cool. So she's the general conversation person. Yeah. You know, Kristen, it's a, it's a great show. I highly advise you. That's awesome. Uh, to listen to it if you haven't already. Uh, but first, here's a promo from them. Ever wish you had sisters? Come be our four sisters, we bitch. I mean, discuss childhood, adulthood, sisterhood. All the hoods of life. And the painfully hilarious moments that make them. Our way of coping is a lot more fun than therapy. We We promise. promise. Wait, you guys, we didn't even say the name of the podcast. Listen to Damn Girl on iTunes. So instead of a friend or four top five, uh, Matt, I wanted to actually go to the fan base Go to the mailbag. Let's open that up. Oh, fun. Yeah, let's open that up today because we've been getting quite a few, uh, but one of them really stuck out. And uh, we have a question from Avi uh, who sent it in from Twitter. Okay, cool. Uh, And his question is, are you guys excited for the premiere of the Star Wars Rebels? Um, The Rebels? Yeah. That's, um, or The Last Jedi? Which one? Well, I think the animated series is the Rebels. So okay. I think maybe he he could have met the last oh, Jedi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, I like you know what Star Wars actually does good animated stuff. Um, I'm totally like I think maybe I'm a bit more of a Star Wars guy, but I'm I'm actually really looking forward to the next new installment and in the live action um, yeah. portion. Yeah. Um, I was actually 
so bummed out by the the three like the prequels or whatever that came out in like the mid 2000s yeah they kind of blew um i went to every single one like the day after opening and waited in line all that bullshit and uh they every single one disappointed me um so like they really had to win me back over and they really have with the new uh the new movies so like what do you think about them are you Uh, yeah that those uh you know, the first three that came out when we were a bit younger or whatever, I hated them. Yeah. Uh, I went back to the original. So I, it's funny, you know, in the lead up to The Last Jedi, my wife and I have gone back and we've watched them in both orders. So chronological order. So the way that the the storyline unfolds. So you start with the three kind of newer ones and then anyway, you kind of go between the old ones. Uh, but then And then we watched them in uh, release order. So we watched the older ones first and then the newer ones and so on. Um, I kind of like watching them in the order in which the story unfolds. So the Hmm. last Jedi, I think is the first one to go beyond the canon. If I remember right. Right. Because Luke's like like the last Jedi. So then it, and, but then there's the offspring, right? That is going to be the next last Jedi. Right. Right, Yeah. So I don't think it's a prequel or a sequel. I think this is a whole new storyline. But what's interesting is that if Luke was the last Jedi, then it's basically a continuation. It's like a a retread of the old story, right? Yeah. There's only one Jedi and they have to make it flourish. So it's almost like a giant redo. Yeah. In a way. Um, I, I, this just popped in my head, but skip to the end. This podcast that I listened to as a movie review podcast, they um, mentioned that you should go back and watch the trailer for the original star Wars. Mm. Apparently, it looks nothing like th- what the movie was about. Like it com- mm. is completely misleading. So um, I haven't watched it yet, but they just, I just listened to that today. And so, um, yeah, go watch the trailer for um, A New Hope, the very first Star Wars movie. Yeah, A New Hope. And I know a lot of people on social media have been complaining that there's too many kind of uh, spoilers, I guess, in the, in the trailer. In the trailers, yeah. So maybe this is a good reminder that, you know, trailers don't need to represent what the movie yeah, is. Yeah, like I honestly don't ever watch trailers. Like I, no. I don't even know how one watches trailers. Oh like, man, I'm I'm a you're trailer, trailer fiend. Yeah. Yeah. I go on the YouTube and uh just will watch all the trailers for the week hmm. uh that come out. And I try to do that every second week. Oh really? Um, because I don't actually get to watch the whole movies, to be honest with you. Hmm. So I watch like, you know, there's one version of a trailer and then there's the second version, and then generally there's like an extended version. For yeah. the really big movies anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and movies sort of, and I'm cynical, but like movies kind of suck nowadays. Like it's like by and large. So sometimes all you have to do is see the trailer and then you're like, okay, I don't really have yeah. to watch this movie now. <laughs> Waste oh, like two well, hours. Speaking of movies, mm. uh, maybe this is a good time to fill our listeners in about our plans. But uh, I think you and I might be heading to the movie theater together. Oh, oh right. Okay. <laughs> Shit. I thought we were going to like make a movie then. I just forgot about this. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I can manage <laughs> no, no, a movie no. we theater. We can literally trip, manage man. a podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll buy popcorn and everything. Yeah. We're yeah. going to, um, next week, we're going to record an episode about Blade Runner. So Phil but, and I have both watched the original. It's only the second time I've ever seen the original. What a masterpiece. Um, I've also re- read uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, yep. the Philip K. Dick novel that the yeah. movies were based on. And then Phil and I, if we have time, <laughs> we're we have going time, to try yeah. to like team up and go to a movie theater together and watch the new uh, Blade Runner. So yeah, and stay that's, tuned for that. And that's Blade Runner 2049. And that's I've right. heard that it looks just absolutely stunning. Yeah. Visually, it is... Um, you know, probably maybe one of the best movies that have. Yeah. It's one that you should probably go to the theater to watch. Well, that, well, that's just it. And, and, you know, like I've always enjoyed movies by Denis Villeneuve. Um, Oh yes. There's, you know, there's very few movies of his that I haven't enjoyed. 
And mm-hmm. I think this one, um, you know, because it's science fiction mm-hmm. and we've talked about Philip K. Dick on this podcast yeah, before, sure. I, I just feel like we need to to do oh, something around it. It's and perfect. I'm, you know, I'm really excited to actually just con- like, you know, concentrate a full episode on two movies. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're, sure. we're, like, that rabbit hole is going to go down yeah. many different. Episodes. Yeah. I got a lot of notes already on the first one. And um, just a side note, they, they've been trying to get this director to do this movie for years. That was another yeah. thing that I heard on the skip to the end podcast. They have a nice review of it as well, yeah. but listen to ours first. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we will talk about some of the other movies that didn't even have like uh, Putty Technique and they saw Z um, and that kind of stuff. He, he tackles the, the really hard kind of questions in life. So, Phil, why don't you tell everybody how they could reach us? You can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can follow us on Facebook at The SimPod. You can email us anytime at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. You can catch uh, the show, full episodes, plus the bonus material and our patio sessions, the archives of the show, and some bonus material that we send out in text form on our website at thesim.podby.com. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those other kind of things. All uh, over the internet. All over the internet. Uh, we'd love for you to leave us a review. I know a lot of people say this, like, you know, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, a review could just be a tweet. You know, send us a tweet. Just love us. Uh, you know, sometimes we just need to feel love. <laughs> send us love. your love, please. Yeah, and, you know, we'll return the favor. So send us your questions. Yeah, And, sure. and, and, and you know, who doesn't like a, a good shout out? Yeah, right? for sure. And also um, topics for future episodes as well. Something oh, yeah, I'm always looking for. We'd love that. Uh, but speaking of Star Wars, uh, The Elders with Jack Wilkinson, a, ro- a rocky, folksy sort of group from Salt Lake City, Utah, reached out to us. We have their brand new song uh, performed by Jack Wilkinson himself who is a huge Star Wars fan, Matt. Um, So here is a brand new song called Man of a Different Time. And I want to kind of ask everyone if they can spot the Back to the Future reference in the lyrics. So when we come back, we will go down the censorship rabbit hole. Man of a different time Man of a different mind I once was a boy Who fell so far behind Things are what they seem When you're lost in the in-between My good friends can't make it socially At Sarkoff you kissed me And wore your promise ring Mr. Weatherby, so glad to see a Friendly face behind your chocolate shake Cause he's a man of a different time Man of a different mind I once was a boy Who fell so far behind Man of a different time Now I'm so obtuse I'm out and on the loose Me and this old man The Lorian were running out of juice Lady, 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 a man of a different time. Lady, 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 a man of a different mind. Man of a different time. Man of a different mind. I once was a boy who fell so far behind. 
man of a different time. Lady, 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 I'm a man of a different time. Lady, 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 I'm a man of a different mind. Lady, 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 I'm a man of a different time. Lady, 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 I'm a man of a different mind. Welcome back to the show. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. This week we are talking censorship, we're talking banning of works, we're talking limiting speech, I guess, kind of, Matt, right? Yeah, totally. Um, so we're going to go beyond the simple definition of challenging and censorship and really dig into these ideas with a whole bunch of examples. So um, we're going to be talking about challenging, censorship, banning, restrictions, prohibiting, um, Phil will uh, introduce all these definitions, and then I'm going to introduce a famous theorist named Stan Cohen and his model called the Moral Panics Model, um, touching on how this can be applied to various examples um, and some of the limitations that his model has. I used it a lot in my MA research, so that's why I'm bringing it up here. Um, then we are just going to get into a whole bunch of examples. We're going to start, start with the um, Nazi uh, student book burnings in the early 30s. And then we're going to move into Billie Halliday in the 50s. And then we're moving on into the 80s. And we're going to talk about censorship, popular music, and the 90s with censoring of video games. Um, when we get to the post-9-11 climate, um, I wanted to dig into jingoism and American patriotism by uh, bringing up Toby Keith and one of my favorite all-female country groups, the Dixie Chicks. And we're going to look at the controversies around there. And then at the very end, we're going to conclude with something that Phil and I have been meaning to talk about for a while, and that is Colin Kaepernick and the protests in the NFL. Now, we have a lot to get through, so let's just jump right into it. <laughs> yeah, <gasps> yeah. Um, I do have to, so jumping right into it with a preface. Uh, so, <laughs> this, so this episode has been uh, a little while in the making, totally. and uh, it kind of came up around our band book week sort of stuff that we were talking about. And, you know, Ono Lit Class has put on a great episode. They released a great episode around banned books and uh, banning of literature. So I want to direct everyone to theirs. Ours won't follow the same exact lines. So yeah. I don't, I didn't want to recreate something that they had already kind of hit out of the ballpark. So yeah, to speak, for right? sure. Uh, so I think, you know, we extended it. Uh, I think we yeah, took it. That's putting it lightly, man. We we we've taken it to uh, a new level, talking yeah. about censorship um, and now, a different direction, really. Like I was starting to make this about banning books because of banned books week, and then it just grew into like censorship, and then I just started. All these examples came to my mind, and um, it kind of grew out from there. So um, I know we're going to be talking about some definitions and maybe a little Foucault as well. So. Bill, maybe you can yeah. introduce these definitions yeah. so, for us. So, like, um, I'm going to uh, resort to the American Library Association uh, to start, okay? So, a challenge, according to them, a challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials based on the objections of a person or group. Um, so, 
a challenge is different than an outright ban when it comes to books. Okay. So a ban is the actual removal of those materials. So we can kind of differentiate between a challenge and a ban. Now, something that is censored is the removal of certain content. Okay. So it can either be censored entirely or censored kind of in part. Um, now, restricted, we talk about uh, another category, something that is restricted or something that is prohibited. Things that are restricted generally apply to age groups, certain categories of people, right? So you can think of the horror movies or you can think of porn, for example, being restricted to those who are over the age of 18 or 21, age of majority. So it's all about protecting certain groups that need to sort of be protected and uh, cloistered in our society. Well, I think on the surface, okay. that's what these sort of things tell us. But yeah. uh, as we will see, when we start to dig into it, uh, the categories get a little murky and the reasons behind it even murkier. Um, now, things that are outright prohibited. Now, think of weapons, for example. You can have a category of restricted weapons. So it's mm. restricted to only certain people. Oh, okay. You need to have a license. You need to be able to maybe have to fire or like uh, follow a firearms training. But then there are those weapons that are prohibited. So no one can have them, even mm. if you've done those trainings. Yeah. No one can walk around with a flamethrower. Yeah, or a grenade launcher. Grenade launcher. Like those yeah. are good kind yeah. of extreme Drive examples, right? <laughs> those are prohibited. You're not allowed to have them. Um, you know, using the metaphor of firearms, uh, we can then move on to things like books and it gets murky, right? So like, why would a piece of fiction be prohibited? Well, let's think, for example, before I get into it, let's think of porn. Mm. So porn, most of it is uh, restricted. Restricted, yeah. Restricted to age majority, um, maybe certain locations. So you can't look at, can't watch porn on your work computer, for oh, example. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. So it can be restricted to certain populations, but then also where you consume it is restricted to certain lo localities. But then there are those categories of porn that are just outright prohibited. So child mm. porn, for yeah. example. Mm. Smart, uh, yeah. smart films smart as films. well. Yeah. yeah, you can't, you know, yeah. pretend. Bestiality stuff Bestiality well. yeah. in some states and some <laughs> provinces, yeah. Um, so, you know, things that are restricted and prohibited surround us in our mm. everyday life. So yeah. vehicle driving, for example, is a restricted activity. Mm. It's restricted to those who have a license who have reached a certain age and who have passed a certain exam and then pay for their license. Um, but then there are certain things that you can't do on the road. Those things are prohibited. Mm. And it's interesting that uh, certain things get restricted at, in certain places for different reasons. And this is why this episode kind of blew up with all these examples, because by looking at restrictions and prohibitions, you can learn a lot about like a culture and a society um, exactly. through yep. their, what they deem as um, morally correct and morally incorrect or invaluable. So I want to add to uh, the kind of normative definitions that are restricted, prohibited, challenged, banned, censored, um, two different ways of looking at it. So the first is uh, through the lens of official versus unofficial. So there are things that are officially banned, uh, officially restricted and prohibited, mm -hmm. but then there are those unofficial things. So growing up, for example, you might still be living with your parents and there's a unofficial kind of prohibition in the household that you cannot watch porn, <laughs> right? 
Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm just, sure. I'm, okay. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, Bill's home life is coming to the surface here. No, I'm not saying it's my home life. I'm just saying, you know, it, it could happen. You're allowed to watch porn, but only in the basement, Phil. Oh, well, there's, there's a good example, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. So yeah, so the category of the, well, the way of seeing it as official versus unofficial. And the other kind of lens that I want to bring in um, is the idea of a good household uh, or an idea of the good patriarch as Aaron Henry kind of explained in his mini series. So I'm not oh, going to, yeah, good connection. I'm not yeah. going to try to rehash yeah. that, but it's the idea, uh, the ability to be able to govern yourself and the ability to govern others. And this is from Michel Foucault, okay. uh, his kind of famous lines around governmentality, Cool. but uh, the idea to restrict or prohibit to ban or to censor, I think uh, falls under this way of governing. So how, you know, states or authorities govern the consumption of material by others then also there's these unofficial ways that we govern the consumption of material that we do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you're bringing up Foucault, man. I was hoping you would. I was almost in these notes, I was kind of hoping, kind of leading you towards Foucault, but um, that um, dialectic, I would call it, I, I just listened to the Anthro 101 episode again today. Right. Um, but um, being governed from the outside and then being governed from within is uh, the hallmark of Foucault. So Yeah. Now, I think there are, other ways that we can look at this. Um, Matt, what, uh, what kind of analytical lens are you bringing today? Okay, so I wanted to introduce Stan Cohen and his very famous uh, sociological uh, theory, I would say, um, called the moral panics model. So we can call him Stan or Stu, but it's Stanley Cohen. Uh, oh, I, I always see it as Stan, Stan in the literature. Yeah, yeah. people actually refer to him yeah. as uh, Stan. His, his early books are Stanley. Oh, Stanley. Okay. Well, yeah. there you go. So if you're Googling, uh, Stan. that is. So, and this um, theory comes from his uh, work that was published in 1972. And as I mentioned in the intro or at the start of this part, um, I use this heavily in my master's thesis uh, to talk about the media around concussions um, and the panic that uh, formed around uh, youth concussions in particular. So Stan Cohen's model is actually an emergent theory that came about um, in response to an actual historical event. Um, so he analyzed the Brighton Beach riots between the mods and the rockers in the summer of 1964. And this is where his model kind of emerged from. Um, he, um, many people will use Stan Cohen's model to um, compare other moral panics um, and this is one of the critiques, but, um, I just wanted to note there that the, the who, the famous band, um, made a, uh, rock opera called, uh, Quadrophenia in 1973. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a movie was made in 1979. So if you want to actually see this mods and rockers, uh, moral panic around the, uh, these youth subcultures, um, I recommend, um, that, uh, movie as well. And, you know, the, the epoch that, Cohen was writing about um, is really important to kind of put into context because I think it leads into some of our other examples. But he's talking about uh, a, a small kind of very, you know, contained thing that happened. That's right. You know, it basically was happening down on the beaches um, in a time when the labor force was completely kind of being devastated by neo-Thatcherite or pre-Thatcherite sort of policies in Britain. So like we think he's a sociologist. Uh, I would think he does good anthropology as well. But, oh yeah, no, Stan um, Cohen's awesome, man. I like but him a lot. he's like, he's at a, at, a, at a very particular time in the UK 
that actually led into some of the Margaret Thatcher sort of policies later right. in, in the mid to late eighties. Right. Yeah. So we're seeing, um, small unemployment numbers. Uh, so people are, you know, hanging around, they have lots of leisure time, uh, which always translates into youths not working yeah. idle. Yeah. Um, but then a really strong, because it's still in the early seventies, a really strong sort of social moral fabric that is still informed by the church and the yeah. sense of patriotism and this, this sort of shit. Right. So like the clash between these two groups was so minute in the makeup of the whole, but it got blown out of proportion. Yeah, for sure. It became a, a focus of media attention as well. And that's the big component of Stan Cohen. And, and it's kind of interesting. It provided a perfect little um, aquarium to study and, and to apply theory to. But um, what, Cohen's legacy is, is that this model is like readily applicable to multiple different contexts. Um, but that is also the critique of the model. And we'll yeah. get to that in a second. Yeah. So I got a, a bit of a giant quote here. So okay, giant quote I might time. take a pause in the middle so Phil can chime in just to break it up. But okay. I might also just read it out because Dan Cohen's is a great writer. Yeah. Um, so this comes from page one, actually, of, of his book in 1972. Um so a moral panic is a condition, episode, person, or group of persons that emerge to become defined as a threat to societal values and interests. Its nature is presented in a stylized and stereotypical fashion by the mass media. The moral barricades are manned by editors, bishops, politicians, and other right-thinking people. Yeah, and you know one of the hallmarks of picking up and running with Cohen these days is really to focus on some of these aspects that he says right at the start. So right. a threat to societal values and interests. The other thing, it's stylized, it's That's stereotyped right. yeah. by the mass media. And you know today we can think of mass media as including things like social media. Um, and the other kind of really important point, and this always gets picked up on, and it's one of the critiques, and I'm going to launch it yeah. uh, later, but yeah, sure. it, it's that it's the right thinking people That's who start right. moral panics. Yeah. Rarely do we see a moral, the, the, the category, the label of moral panic applied to those from the left who are trying to oust and show uh, some of the activities of the right. Mm. It, it's a label, it's a category that is picked up by the left to style, to label and stylize, to use that word, uh, right-wing um, activities. Um, you know, it's very rare that you see a moral panic against um, the right-wing. It's always against the left-wing. Right, and I this just popped into my head, but you think about the Charlottesville um, protests, and yep. it's like even the people on the left would say like, well, that's a bit of a one-off, or those are individuals who are hateful. It's not like they make, jump to the societal level and say that, society is messed up and they're all going towards Nazism and white supremacy right. as yeah. well. Yeah. So they, uh, the left is more prone to say this. No, it's just that group of individuals yeah. over there. And, um, you know, I'll pick back up on this way at the end. So I'm not going to talk about it yeah. again until we start talking about the NFL and Colin, uh, Kaepernick, Kaepernick's, yeah. um, you know, kind of thing that that's going on down there. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. And I don't know if this is the title of the book, but Folk Devils and Moral Panics. Yep, it's um, part of the title. So uh, Folk Devils is another, uh, um, so these people who uh, the Moral Panic centers around are often deemed as like devilish, but also um, embodying certain elements of society and but perverting it in some way. Yep. So I'll continue on with the exact same quote. So socially accredited experts pronounce their diagnoses and solutions. Ways of coping are evolved or, more often, resorted to. The condition then disappears, submerges, or deteriorates and becomes more visible. Now, 
that has never made sense to me. Yeah. But. It's um, so the way that Cohen kind of sees it is that it's sort of a process. Okay. And um, the process kind of emerges as, um, you know, and I'm going to simplify this, right? But there's uh, something that happens out there in the world that something offends uh, certain people. Mm. Those certain people react, um, and in Cohen's suggestion, overreact. Right. Bring it to the media, and they're in cahoots about drawing attention to the thing. Now, that draws attention to it and creates kind of an upheaval. Everyone gets angry. Um, people try to put things in place. So you can think of curfews. You can think of laws. You can think of, uh, you know, some of those um, really kind of draconian measures that are put on youth as examples of this. Right. Um, and like the Buffalo Springfield song from the protest uh, exactly. episode yeah. was about um, a curfew placed on youth. Exactly. Which was... Um, Placed on them because um, the powers that be saw even in 1966 that this was the start of a youth protest yeah. movement. Yeah. So we better start throwing yeah. curfews on them. And then what Cohen kind of says happens is that the thing that was causing all the upheaval just naturally disappears. So it doesn't even, re- it's not even really impacted by those mechanisms that are put in place. It's just that it just kind of fades away. Um, but then, you know, he kind of creates this opportunity in that it may become even more visible. Exactly. And the more visible part has nothing to do with the people who are targeted. It has everything to do with legitimizing the things that were put in place, the mechanisms. Mm. So the mechanisms generally don't work, or right. in Cohen's kind of language, they never work. Mm. But to kind of show face, to be able to say, hey, look, we did something that worked, more and more attention is drawn to it. So this is where you see the extended coverage of the mm. same thing over and over and over again, mm. even though everyone knows it's kind of passe, no one's really part of it, et cetera. So what I th- kind of popped in my head again, um, but basically now we're seeing a situation where the 24-hour news cycle is down to like almost a one-hour news cycle in a way. Um, so when Cohen's writing in the mid-70s, news stories persisted longer and and there was probably um, more traction to a, a situation where a bunch of youth are rioting in Brighton Beach, which is a famous holiday spot, if you don't know that, in, in England. Yeah. Um, so I'll continue on to uh, the quote here. Um, Sometimes the object of panic is quite novel, and at other times it is something which has been in existence long enough, but suddenly appears in the limelight. So that's what Phil's getting at with youth cultures. Youth culture has always existed, but all of a sudden it emerges as a problem, a moral problem. Um Sometimes the panic passes over and is forgotten. And at other times it has a, has more serious and long-lasting repercussions and might produce such changes as those in legal and social policy or even the way society conceives itself. So as Phil says, if these things persist, um, like I, I would say mass shootings in the United States, um, the story itself is passe in the sense that like they happen frequently, but there is starting and probably slower than is needed social changes that are happening as well, where lawmakers are finally waking up in my, I'll get off my soapbox, but waking up and putting some restrictions on these firearms. Um, But as you can see there with the firearm example, Americans believe that that is part of their culture and it is in the fabric of their being. So it's hard to just change something in uh, response to some random event. Yeah. The firearms example is a kind of a touchy one to try to grapple with through Cohen. Um, I think we could, if we had a, you know, a longer three, four hour framework to do so. Yeah, different episode. Um, The one, so the, you know, my last kind of thing that I'll throw out there before we move on is um, think of graffiti, for example. Okay, yeah. And the ways in which, um, you know, 
the artistic expressions um, of a stereotypical youth get uh, criminalized uh, and really draconian measures are put in place to stop, prevent, and apprehend those who do graffiti. Um, it becomes linked to a certain set of morals. So the morality of a clean city, the morality right. of following sanitation. rules, sanitation, yeah. etc., it gets wrapped into things like broken uh, windows theory. Right, yeah. In that, you know, if there's a broken window, there's going to be 10, there's going to yeah. be a burglary, there's going to be a rape, a murder, et cetera. Yeah, right? if people don't feel um, proud of their city and want to maintain its upkeep, then they're going to, like, result to various degenerative crimes and things. Yeah. Exactly. And Cohen's point is that, you know, it can... So these changes that you put in place to limit graffiti can have long-lasting repercussions. And one of those repercussions, for example, is that now we're starting to, to realize that youth need access, safe access, to graffiti walls to be able to have that art artistic expression. So we have a whole contingent of youth who, at one point in time, in their lifetime, were said, no, what you're doing is bullshit. Uh, totally delegitimized. De yeah. They were treated as uh, slobs and basically treated as criminals. And now we're coming around and we're saying, you know what, here's a legal wall. Go and do graffiti. Yeah. So, you know, those messages are quite complex to, to try to wrap your head around, right? And then just with graffiti, it's like going to go and graffiti up a whitewashed wall that has been provided by the city of Ottawa. I mean, that's pretty whack. Like yeah. it, it, it loses all the political oomph yeah, well, of exactly. doing graffiti yeah. as well. So yeah. um, before we move into all our examples, Phil, can you offer some like critiques that are common of Cohen? I got a little one as well that I did in my master. So maybe some uh, challenges to Cohen. Yeah. I think one of the major ones is uh, Cohen's use and uh, mobilization of the word morality. Um, you know, moral panics, uh, the first word in it is moral and he's writing from the 1970s. So I'm not sure it exactly translates all of that well into our current situation where we're not really talking about morality as much. So I think, um, the word morality right. has a certain connotation in what he's saying. Yeah. It's been critiqued quite a bit. I'm not quite sure where I fall on that line. I Me think. neither. You know, I think I think morality is a powerful concept. It it is, but I think some of the things that even Cohen pointed to as being examples of moral panics didn't necessarily touch on what what we could define as as morality. Right. Um, so right. so like for me, like I'll just jump in with my small critique. But like when I use Cohen in my masters, um, my critique of him was like it's not like you throw the baby out with the bathwater with him you just modify it a little bit exactly. so that it fits yeah. your own. Yeah. So instead of saying moral panic in my master's, I called it a moral trepidation right. around uh, concussion prevalence, whether it be amongst prof professional athletes. So it's not as strong there, but it's like, oh no, our game is going to be changed, especially as Canadians. That's like, it's at our national morality. Right. And then, especially with youth, that was the closest thing I saw to a panic level. And um, in my research, I would use a lot of um, media sources um, to document this, um, this trepidation. And um, so that's, that's how I kind of made it work for me. But like, for the most part, I, I just sort of like used a lot of his theory. Like it, 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 it was all there. Yeah. I think like there, there, there is a certain amount of caution that has to be thrown to applying Cohen's, I would call it a micro theory to mm. everything, right? So like, it's yeah, not, sure. it's not everything that gets banned or censored that has this, you know, flavor of moral panic. 
But I think the examples that we've chosen are, and I think we can defend that they are moral panics in a mm. certain way. Yeah, um, it's kind of why we chose them. Yeah, but like I'm not, I'm not convinced. For example, that we would say that a fight against child pornography and child exploitation is a moral panic. You know, mm. I think, I think the prevalent morality around protecting children is safeguarded in the idea that we need to stop um, child pornography or child exploitation. So I don't think there's a moral panic around child pornography yeah and you know I, you know and like there should be and that's the interesting thing where society doesn't really operate within the theories that we put forth to analyze them right exactly so okay i want to just touch on um uh, briefly on a point of technology yeah for sure um now whenever something is censored or banned or restricted or prohibited whenever something gets labeled as a moral panic there are many layers of technology that are involved and you can you know, start to use your imagination to think of them. But, you know, on the very first layer of the technology that is required to ban something is that access to the thing needs to happen. So there needs to be technological channels. And mm. by technology, we can think of things like books. We can think of things like the internet, the radio. There That's needs right. to be a distribution mechanism. It's very rare that a work is banned if it's not distributed. So there needs to be a network of technological means to be able to distribute those things. And oftentimes, it is not the network itself that is the target of the banning or the censoring. So if we think of books, for example, and again, I'm going to call back the episode on Ono Lit Class, who talked about banned books, and they did a great review of the American Library Association and how they view challenged and banned works. Um, but the idea of the book isn't banned. Right. So someone doesn't say all books are evil. You know, we're not in a Fahrenheit 451 sort of state, mm -hmm. although we could descend into that. Rare, like that's rare. Right. Usually it's an item that is found within the means of communication, the network that is targeted. Uh, as we'll see, I think those sorts of um, examples can get blurred. Right, so what actually gets targeted within the network is kind of blurry, mm. and uh, so that actually perfectly leads me into my very first example. So um, I just wanted to give a really quick shout out to another podcast that gave me the idea to bring this up, and it's called Reflecting History, and they're in the middle of a five part series on the rise of the Nazi Party, and uh, the um, producer and uh, host of the show talked about the um, uh, 1933 uh, Nazi German Student Union. Uh, book burning parties, basically. Um, so what I think is really interesting is that Phil mentions you cannot stop the distribution network, right? So books are available, any technology is available right, because yeah. people have a desire for knowledge, right? And a desire to spread knowledge. And the idea here with the Nazi student union book burnings was not to ban all books and all literature. It was very specific, all German or all Jewish um, all un-German yeah, yeah, sort of yeah, literature. Yeah. So I thought that was a really good point, man. Um, so basically in April of 1933, an edict was sent down by the Nazi party that the German Student Union should um, organize these parties and burn books. So they published, um, the union published a thing called the Twelfth Thesis, and this actually harkens to Martin Luther. And uh, Martin Luther, uh, that was one moment of burning uh, books where it was burning the papal bull, 
when he put his 99 thesis on the church door. And then there was another event um, celebrating the anniversary of Martin Luther's Burning the Paper Bowl, where they did another book printing party, and I can't remember when that was. So basically on um, May 6, 1933, um, the Union um, made an organized attack on the Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute of Sex Research and its libraries and archives of around 20,000 books and journals were publicly hauled out and burned. On May 10th, 1933, the students burned upwards of 25,000 volumes of, quote, un-German books in the square at the State Opera in Berlin. Um, And this is sort of interesting because it ushers in this uncompromising state-led censorship campaign. And that's why I bring up this example here. Um, And these book-burning parties happened across many university towns, and it started a big movement of um, censoring certain uh, works, prohibiting uh, certain works, and then restricting others, and then promoting uh, German um, Aryan sort of works as well. I think we can return to one of the lenses that I said that I was going to use, and this idea of governing yourself and governing others. Yeah, perfect. And I think, you know, this is one of amongst many examples that we'll look at that Clearly, it was the German state saying, if you want to lead a good moral life, then you cannot read these books. It was an exercise in governing. It was an exercise in state suppression of certain forms of expression um, you know, to promote uh, their message. So that's a perfect kind of lead into a quote I got, and it's kind of lengthy. It's from Joseph Goebbels. Um, so bear with us, it's full of hate speech. Um, But I think it's interesting to hear um, in translation the words that we often just see through images of them shouting out in German. Um, And it gets right at what Phil's talking about, about the good moral life and various approved, state-approved forms of morality. So I quote, "Um, No decadence and moral corruption. Gorbals enjoyed the crowd. Um, Yes to decency and morality in family and state. I consign to the flames the writings of Heinrich Mann, Ernst Gleiser, Heinrich Kastner. The era of extreme Jewish intellectualism is now at an end. The breakthrough of the German Revolution has again cleared the way of the Ger- on the German path. The future of German man will not just be a man of books, but a man of character. It is to this end that we want to educate you as a young person, to already have the courage to face the pitiless glare, to overcome the fear of death, and to regain the respect for death. This is the task of the young generation. And thus, you do well in the midnight hour to commit to the flames the evil spirit of the past. This is a strong, great, and symbolic deed, a deed which should document the following for the world to know. Here, The intellectual foundation of the November Republic is sinking to the ground, and from this wreckage, the phoenix of a new spirit will triumphantly rise. Yeah. Um, Knowing the context and knowing who said it, um, you know, it's obviously startling. Yeah, and I put the rhetorics. Honestly, man, I put the emphasis in there intentionally because that was how they got crowds riled up, and it just is disturbing. I'm disturbed right now. I mean, the, the rhetorical moves in there are seen by both uh, the right and the left uh, today. You know, I don't think, um, and if you remove the context and you remove the, um, I guess, uh, we could call it the target of the charge. Of course. Uh, there's lots of left-wing protests that use the same rhetorical sorts of moves, right? Mm-hmm. By saying, you know, let's lead a good life. Let's get rid of this supposed um, evil 
uh, of some sort. Yeah. This, um, you know, we could call it a plague. We could call it a sickness. Yeah. Like the, the left has morality just as strong as the right does as well. And they play them in opposition to each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a hard one because when you start just burning stuff, really you're sending a message um, that goes beyond censorship, that goes beyond banning. It's just destruction. It's erasure more than any kind of mechanism in place to stop the consumption of it. Yeah. And the podcast that I mentioned, Reflecting History, he did a really interesting treatment. It's maybe only like seven minutes long, but of these two, like I call them dueling art exhibits. Uh, the Nazis put forth uh, an art exhibit in response to this very popular art deco a modern art exhibit that was being put on in Germany in the early 30s. So the Nazi exhibit was all classical art from the late 1800s. And it's almost like there you see an example of the Nazis promoting an idealized form of German nationalism that harkens back to the time that nobody remembers. And they are in direct opposition to this progressive um, art exhibit um, and then the progressive art exhibit in correspondence is directly in opposition to the Nazis as well. You know, it's funny because it, I've said this before on the podcast, but it reminds me of an episode of the West Wing. And uh, in this particular episode of the West Wing, the um, person in charge of, I believe it's Ways and Means or some congressional yeah, committee yeah. that basically controls the funds to the NEH, so the yeah. National Arts um, Foundation. NEH. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, so Toby's having it out with the person and says, well, you know, I grew up watching Sesame Street. I grew up watching these sorts of PBS uh, things and they are all funded yeah. by state grant funds and stuff. Yeah. funds, right? Like without them, we wouldn't have it. Yeah. Um, and the person says, you know, riles off a list of these really kind of exoteric sorts of works of art that, you know, she deems to be un unfit for grants. And Toby's response is, but we don't know what art is don't let me judge art. And yeah. he kind of does this kind of funny face, right? But I think it kind of harkens back to this. We don't know what art is. Mm. And art can get posted and it can be out there. How you interpret it is kind of within the context in which you do that. What's different in this case is that Nazi art was particular in its messages. There was no interpretation needed. We knew what it was doing. Yeah, it was like right on the damn nose. And it reminds me also of the Spanish um, exactly. propaganda yes, process yes. we looked at with Evan, um, where um, stylistically they actually adopt the exact same style. It's like Art Deco, um, kind of modern art style of the 30s. Um, but the messaging behind it um, on the two streams or the three streams are completely different. But um, it's interesting there in Spain the propaganda was right on the nose, but then there was also a lot of subtlety in it. But with yeah. the Nazis, it was like, really like, believe this or we're going to fucking execute you. Yeah, it was less art and, yeah. and more a form of, uh, like I'm going to use the word brainwashing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was coercion yeah. through some sort of facade of an artistic means, right? Yeah, and um, people who live through this time will speak of it as like a bit of a daze, especially people right, of German yeah. descent. Yeah. They're like, wow, it just... It was like a hazy time. Yeah. Um, I want to mention uh, the death of Billie Holiday. Uh, May 31st, 1959, Holiday was taken to Metropolitan Hospital in New York for treatment of liver disease and heart disease. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics, under the order of Harry J. Asenzler. <laughs> An Anslinger. Anslinger. Yeah, he, he I, I uh, created time. the DA. I have yeah. a hard time pronouncing 
names. No so. worries, man. You're writing comps, bro. I'm, you got to pass. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't podcasted in two weeks, bro. I'm fumbling right. along as well. Um, so uh, Anslinger had been targeting Holiday uh, since at least 1939, and she had been arrested and handcuffed for drug, drug possession as she lay dying in her hospital room and was raided when she was placed under police guard. On July 15th, she received the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church and died two days later on July 17th, 1959 at 3.10 a.m. of pulmonary um, fail and heart failure, pulmonary and and, and uh, endemia. Endemia. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Endemia. Uh, names and medical conditions, man. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> so in her final year, she had been progressively swindled out of her earnings and she died with uh, approximately 70 cents uh, in her in her pocket. So it would be under $10 uh, in, in today's money. Um, you know, it was a tabloid uh, fee on, mm. on, on, on her port, on her person, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, Billy holiday, greatest, one of the greatest uh, legends in, in the art world, um, not compensated at all and mm. arrested for drug possession. Yeah. And, and she died of like liver failure and a uh, heart condition um, brought about by the lifestyle that she had to live in going into these clubs. And, you know, Billie Holiday is one of those um, African-American artists who had to go through the back door and through the kitchen. And, and yeah, she was a superstar yeah. with all these white people paying to uh, see her sing. And, and she had to walk through like she's a second-class citizen. Um, I actually uh, found a quote from her obituary, and I'd like to just read it out if I may. Yeah. Um, and this is from the obituary. As she lay mortally ill in the room from, her, from which a police guard had been removed by court order only a few hours before her death, which, like her life, was disorderly and pitiful. She had been strikingly beautiful, but she was wasted physically to a small, grotesque caricature of herself. The worms of every kind of excess, drugs were only one, had eaten her. The likelihood exists that among the last thoughts of the cynical, sentimental, profane, generous, and greatly talented woman of 44 was the belief that she was to be arraigned the following morning. She would have been, eventually, although possibly not that quickly. In any case, she removed herself finally from the jurisdiction of any court here below. You know, I think, um, so one line of thought could say, why are we bringing up Billie Holiday in a episode about censorship? Yeah. Right. Um, I would like to think that these sorts of ways of targeting, of arresting, of seeking out, of doing, you know, state, I'm going to just call it state sponsored violence yeah, is sure. a form of censorship in, yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. And Billie Holiday, especially, and this is why I sort of, brought this example out here is um, that uh, she had a very extreme um, case of being like sort of a feeling of being monitored constantly right, yeah. by, uh, by the government, yeah. you know, and this Harry Anslinger, um, he's no shit. Like he's the person who made cannabis and um, psilocybin mushrooms and cocaine and heroin, all these things. Um, he made them all illegal. He was um, like a real um, moral Puritan. Yep. Right, and you see, even here in the obituary, I think the um, uh, the line was the worms of every kind of excess drugs were only one had eaten her. Right. So even like, and that was written by one of her friends, right? Yeah, that obituary, yeah. right. and even there, you see the moral moralizing process. Yes. And I think Billie Holiday's is especially important because she's an African American woman 
uh, beautiful singer. Like she was like, you know, very talented. So the state, in the sense, to maintain moral order and the normal structure of society, quote unquote, uh, they had to restrict Billie Holiday. So a number of times she had her, um, what are they called? Their, um, they had these licenses in the 30s and 40s, yeah, yeah. basically um, cabaret licenses, mm-hmm. I think they were called, where you needed this license to be able to perform in a place that was serving alcohol. Right. Um, and uh, she had hers um, suspended a number of times. So you see right there a real example of the state coming down and uh, censoring um, this very talented, beautiful 44-year-old woman. Uh, Before we move on with our next example, I do want to just throw something in here because I heard it uh, just a few days ago on the CBC. Um, And it's the idea of uh, state uh, surveillance and, you know, this question of, well, how is surveillance, you know, harmful? Um, and I'm just going to throw this out here, and I'm, I don't even really want to qualify it, but um, state surveillance or any forms of surveillance is violence. Mm. So when we start yep. policing, particularly communities of color, through surveillance, that is a state uh, act of sponsored violence. Yeah, and by violence, I think Phil means like, whether it's direct like harm to the person, like we see here with Billy Holiday, or it's restrictions to your free will and free movement within society because you know you're being watched and you know your actions are being monitored. Um, this is what we mean by violence. It's more than just direct like physical harm, I think. Yeah, yeah. For sure. uh, but music, Matt, uh, has kind of been the linchpin of censorship, has definitely been the linchpin of restrictions uh, move us into the 1980s and talk to us a little bit about how music uh, gets wrapped up in these networks of censorship. Perfect. So in 1985, the Parents Music Resource Center was founded, and that was literally a network of censorship and restriction. Um, quote, the stated goal of increasing parental control over the access of children to music deemed to have violent, drug-related or sexual themes via labeling albums with parental advisory stick-um, stickers. Sorry, um, stickums. Um, so this committee was actually founded by uh, four women, um, and they're all um, married to Washington D.C. bigwigs. So pr- prominent, uh, prominent, probably so, white women. But. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Tipper Gore, so wife of um, vice, pre- then vice president, or then senator, and later vice president Al Gore. Uh, Susan Baker, who is a wife of Treasury Secretary, Secretary James Baker. Um, Pam Hauer, who uh, is wa- wife of a Washington real- re- realtor. And Sally uh, Nevis, uh, wife of former Washington City uh, Council Chairman John Nevis. Um, so these uh, four women um, were came to be known as the Washington Wives, quote-unquote. Washington Wives, Okay. And this is a reference, obviously, to their husband's connections with the government in Washington, D.C. So the, um, the Parent Music uh, Resource Council um, eventually uh, grew to include only 22 participants. And then by the late, mid to late 90s, it just sort of disbanded. I wonder why. Like their acronym sucks, PMRC. Yeah, I know. It's like PMRC. Yeah, like why don't you <laughs> find, some, like, find something that, like, I don't know, mad, you know, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. <laughs> And like, know. yeah, and it, it's funny too, because like, so in the eighties, it was all about music, right? Cause video games weren't really like home entertainment systems weren't really uh, fully going at that time. 
Um, so they would, I remember this distinctly, would often call it devil music. Devil music. And yeah. this is why I bring this up because of the folk devils uh, right. element with Stan Cohen, right? Um, and it would usually center around either heavy metal or sexually provocative music. Um, this is where you'd see like, hey, if you play the song backwards, you hear this message. Right, like, the satanic, satanic messages. messages right? Yeah. Um, and actually, when I was prepping this episode, there's a whole YouTube yes. genre to this. Yes, like all these songs playing of backwards. playing shit backwards. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. I had a little bit of a fun rabbit hole on that one, but uh, it fried my brain a little. <laughs> um, I personally remember um, Nine Inch Nails, Downward the Spiral. Yep. Um, and, uh, I also feel like there was a Beatles song where they said, John yes. is dead. John is dead yes. over and over again. There's also hotel California that if you play backwards, it's some messed up message. Exactly. So the big takeaway here with this, um, PMRC, um, is that these are the so-called, um, socially deemed experts who are going to diagnose the problem in this medium. And then they're going to propose, um, fixes to it. And their proposition for a fix was censorship and restriction. Now the foundation, uh, you know, in sociology, we can talk about. Um, superstructures a little bit, but the foundation to this really did extend into the war on drugs that was also happening in the 1980s. So we see yeah, totally. uh, the demonizing of certain categories of people, particularly people of color, being attacked, uh, criminalized, thrown in jail, excluded, uh, for all intents and purposes, banned from participating in society under the auspices of the D.A.R.E. program, which was basically um, an extension of Reagan's war on drugs. Right. Or as you've uh, learnt me, uh, I think, was it a Kissinger plan that actually? Uh, Nixon, actually. Nixon, Nixon okay. kicked off the war on drugs, yeah. And then Reagan and his uh, his wife as well. Yeah. Um, uh, she was the one who was really responsible for D.A.R.E. And if you hear any um, American that is of our age, they all have these fun D.A.R.E. shirts that they got in high right, school. Yeah. And we had similar programs like this up yes, in Canada we as yeah. well. But again, even with the wives, we see this idea that the home needs to be governed, right? Mm -hmm. So that the extension of the home uh, seen through the angle that the state authority is basically just a good parent of its citizens gets wrapped up in what you consume and what you listen to. Like it's basically having... Uh, a, a patriarch king and queen at the helm saying, turn the music down. Yeah, totally. Don't eat that. You know, right? That, like that's governing in this sort of sense. Totally. And when it came to um, Caucasian artists, uh, the the components of their songs, and what I think is interesting is when the, you come to like censor and, and restrict things, um, the people who are doing the restriction are usually hyper-focusing on small, like either words or phrases within a song rather than the overall message, right? right? Yeah. And my second point is when it came to Caucasian artists, um, I feel like, as you say, like it's protecting the home life. So when it was with white artists, they would um, restrict um, content based on sexually explicit content and uh, drug references because those are mm. the two things that would break up the nuclear family, whether right. it's an unwanted teen pregnancy or like recreational drug use. Now, when it came to African-American artists, and I think Phil might be able to cue up a song here that we'll play, um, I feel like they have both the, the drug and the, the sexual content, but then they also like really just focused on swearing, which is the most like incidental thing ever. I don't think we should talk about oh, this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? Oh, but that's a part of life, okay? Let's talk about sex. 
people at home or in the crowd It keeps coming up anyhow Don't decoy, avoid, or make void the topic Cause that ain't gonna stop it Now we talk about sex on the radio and video shows Many will know anything goes Let's tell it like it is and how it could be How it was and of course how it should be Those who think it's dirty have a choice Pick up the needle, press forward Or turn the radio off Will that stop us, Ken? I doubt it Alright then, come on, spin Let's talk about sex Let's talk about sex Let's talk about sex Let's talk about sex To trap, make any man's eyes pop She use what she got to get whatever she don't got Fellas drew like fools, but then again, they're only human This chick was a hit because her body was booming Gold, pearl, rubies, crazy diamonds Nothing she wore was ever common Her dates, heads of state, men of taste Lawyers, doctors, no one was too great for her to get with Or even mess with The press, she says, was next on her list And uh, believe me you, it's as good as true There ain't a man alive that she couldn't get next to She had it all in the bag She should have been glad But she was mad and sad and feeling bad Thinking about the things that she never had No love, just sex Followed next with the check and the note That last night was dope So when we think of uh, hip-hop Particularly when we think of salt and Peppa, uh, we, we can kind of think of like the double whammy, right? Or the triple whammy, rather triple at least. So uh, we have uh, a female We have uh, females of color And we have females of color who talk about sex and who are sexualized. So um, color of skin, sexuality, and gender all mm -hmm. kind of combine. And it kind of, you know, it's the triple whammy. It's the triple threat, right? Yeah. And salt and pepper for me, they represent like sexual politics of the late 80s and early 90s. Um, as women, they have these like almost extra levels of restriction on right. their ability to express the political messages that they want to express, yep. right? So it's a really a restriction on their free will. Um, and for me, salt and pepper represents almost a, a contra morality, especially when they were prevalent. Um, now, bear in mind, in the 80s and 90s, uh, the, these music, uh, these types of music um, by African Americans was being consumed by white kids in the suburbs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's and always kind of been the case. Exactly. And this is actually where the morality and the panic actually lie, is the um, threat to this white suburban life. Now, this takes us, uh, Phil, into video games and uh, the 90s and some of the rating systems. So maybe you can talk about the technologies of control. Yeah. So, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, what we see uh, as an extension to how uh, music is getting labeled is this idea that video games need to also carry some forms of restrictions and prohibitions. And one of the, the more common systems that have been in place is this age kind of um, rating system, right? Now, right, yep. now, it's kind of an interesting way to rate things. So you say, here's a game that we think, whoever this board is, uh, would appeal to children of all ages. But this one has certain elements, mm -hmm. like, uh, I don't know, the suggestion of violence, yeah. uh, that, you know, you should have a parent around. What yeah. kid plays video games with a parent around? Nobody. No one. No. Um, and then you have just the kind of rated R kind of things. And it kind of follows the same sort of format as movies. Um, right. And again, we're using the category of age to determine if it's appropriate that one consumes the material. Now, as a technology, rating systems themselves are fascinating to look at. Consider that a rating system requires the creation of certain categories, be it age uh, or be it even just familiar kind of... Um, habitational 
patterns. So, the, you know, the category that exists, that parental advisory. That's right. Presumes that a child has a parent around. Oh, yeah. Right? It, so it omits an entire category of, of youth. So yeah. if you're a homeless youth, yeah. you're not being thought of in that category system. So the, the systems of ratings really shows to us how things get um, restricted yeah. and, and get censored. Yeah, and they even, I think it was called latchkey kids or whatever, where you have like a key around your neck and when you went home from school, you would let yourself in. Right. And your parents or parent would be off at work, maybe even working their double shift. Um, and you would just sort of be left to your own devices and playing video games and watching TV. And this was sort of the experience of a lot of people in the 90s. And this is some of the angst that Nirvana picked up in a lot of their music. Um, I think also what was interesting in the 90s was that Um, there was a correlation drawn between video games and violence. And the idea was that if you play these video games, like Mortal Kombat uh, was the big, big scary one um, because of his like graphic violence, um, um, that you would go out into the real world, quote unquote, and perpetuate violence. And there was this one example from uh, England, I'm pretty sure, where these kids like supposedly watched Power Rangers and then went and um, beat like a four-year-old to death, right? right? Basically, they're like six or seven. Um, so, uh, Mortal Kombat was the key one that, uh, caused this rating system to, uh, form around, um, Joe Lieberman, he, he's a famous Senator, um, Congressman, one of the two, who cares? Yeah. Um, he was basically the one who kicked off this uh, video game rating system. And the other, um, uh, game that was right alongside it was called Night Trap. And Night it Trap. was, yeah, it's a game I never heard of either. The, this also comes from another podcast. I forget which one it was, so I'm okay. not going to shout out. But, okay, well, thank you, um, Unnamed Podcast. Thank you, Unnamed Podcast, for all the knowledge you've given me. Um, but yeah, it's called Night Trap, and it's basically like a vampire hunting game where it's just a bunch of like teenage girls in their underwear. Um, oh. Yeah, so it was like borderline softcore porn. And this is another thing that was interesting in the late 90s and into the 2000s. There was a lot of games like uh, Leisure Suit Larry was a p- game that was like shared amongst a lot of my teenage friends. Okay. Um, where it was like a, like a sexy little game or whatever. Okay. And that had a lot of restrictions, parental advisory restrictions on it. Um, but it was pretty tame, like especially okay. compared to today's standards. But I mean, we just shared it like crazy. And this gets way back to the technologies of distribution, right? Where yes. as much of restrictions and prohibitions as you throw on there and then that's all well and good, but then like teenage boys will just go on to file sharing services and get all the porn they want, right? Right. And I think there is an argument to say um, that there are better, more adapted or better suited ways to restrict access to certain material. Now, I am not one who's going to say that it's fun or funny to envision a game in which uh, underage girls are running around in their underwear. You know, I don't think that that is something that, you know, needs to exist, for example, personally. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we need to poke fun at that. Yeah. Um, but then uh, as a rating system um, develops and as mechanisms to try to restrict the consumption of those things develops, really what you're doing is you're drawing attention to it. So if this game had never been rated, if this right. game had never been kind of called out for its slanderous sort of approach that, you know, we can seed the question in our head. Well, would have teenage boys actually found it? Yeah. So, and apparently this game was garbage. It took it like 30 like minutes garbage, yeah. to finish. And it's like a weird game where you just basically follow a character and then you just press a button and it like sets off a trap. Like it's a stupid right. game. Yeah, so stupid it would game. not be popular is what you're, you're saying. But like the fear there is that as soon as we get a glimpse of this, 
salacious material. We want to have it. We're just going to go nuts with it. And oh, we're exactly. all going to turn into like pedos. Yeah. Right? And the other kind of point, just before we move on to our post 9-11 examples, Matt, is um, the idea that when we do uh, restrict or ban um, something, and, you know, we've, we've kind of said it before, are we creating a moral panic around the banning of it? Mm. So if we were to say this game is completely salacious and it has no place in the gaming industry, and let's say Nintendo, for example, decided to outright just ban it, mm. right? It's never going to hit the market. It's never going to be there. Is it envisionable to say, well, that is encroaching on some sort of amendment rights or some sort of free speech? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, we talk about banning from both perspectives um, and we can remain kind of apolitical about it a little bit. And, you know, because I think where we're headed in the 9-11 examples, mm-hmm. is we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, totally. And like that gets also to this old forbidden fruit dynamic. When you say, yes. when your parents tell you you can't do something, you're going to do it full Of course force. you do it. You just had like, of course, oh, come on, little Johnny, don't go climb the tree. What does Johnny do? Climbs the tree. <laughs> so we're going to listen to a little Toby Keith and talk about the Dixie Chicks and uh, the post 9-11 climate. My daddy served in the army, we lost his right eye, but he flew a flag out in our yard. Till the day that he died, he wanted my mother, my brother, my sister and me to grow up and live happy in the land of the free. So this is Toby Keith, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. It's from his 2002 album, and the song that we're going to hear next is from the same album. This is uh, the album he released in response to 9-11. It's very jingoistic, it's very full of American patriotism, and if you see the music video, I think it's playing in front of Phil right yeah. now, um, some of the images in there is either soldiers going off to war or injured soldiers who have come back from war. Lots and of American flags, lots of uh, lots of helicopters that we just heard. Just heard there, uh, yeah. You know, shots of, I don't know, if they're going over Arlington or maybe they're in Iraq, I don't know. It could be anywhere. And, and to me, Toby Keith is saying, this is what a true American looks like, yeah. damn it. And you are even truer an American if you get injured or die in war. Absolutely. Just yeah. like Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. My, sorry, sorry, man. It's my sorry, favorite. Just got to get your socks on, right? <laughs> <laughs> All Protect right. your feet. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna. Um, so I'm gonna turn off this one. Yeah, for sure. All right, Matt. What are we listening to now? <laughs> So that's Willie Nelson, believe it Willie or not. Nelson. <laughs> Good yeah, old Willie. Willie Nelson teamed up for a duet with Toby Keith in 2002. Okay. And this is a song called um, Whiskey for My Men, Beer for My Horses. And it's about rounding up a posse, going overseas, and kicking the shit out of some terrorists, boy. All right. Now, again, the imagery in this video is very pro-American, right? Um, but it harkens back to a past kind of American patriotism. Yeah. They're trying to draw a deep linkage in country music to conservatism and patriotism. And in fact, if you're a real fan of country music, you know, back from the 60s and before, it was very progressive, very critical of the system as well. We heard that in our protests and political music, the bluesgrass, right? So this is them manufacturing some fake morality that they think is present in country music and I'm so disappointed in Willie Nelson man I'm such a big fan but this was such a huge misstep here he is 
All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this one off now. Yeah, please do. It's garbage music, garbage music by garbage artist. All right. Well, we still like Willie though. <laughs> oh, we love Willie Nelson, man. And, that guy uh, served some hard time. Uh, for do we like Toby possession. Keith? Do we like Toby Keith? <laughs> um, I liked his first song, but no, I, I don't like Toby Keith. He's garbage, okay. man. And right. he didn't get any better after that album. Um, so basically, the reason I'm playing Toby Keith, the garbage artist, is that in direct opposition to Toby Keith was the Dixie Chicks, right? And in um, London, in March 10th, 2003, they said this at a concert. I tried to find a clip, but I couldn't actually find it. Um, Quote, just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We don't want this war, this violence. We're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Right. And then the aftermath of that one statement um, essentially killed their their career, their entire career, right? And they're a very talented uh, three-woman country music group. And I I love the Dixie Chicks. So I was wondering if, uh, Phil, you can cue up... Um, the song that they played right after the statement there is called Traveling Soldier.
At this time, um, morality and patriotism were deeply intertwined, especially in country music, right? Because country music represents like a Caucasian, traditional American form of music. And as I said before, in the early days of country music, it was not conservative and like pro-America. It was a lot, a lot more like uh, uh, Pete Seeger as well, right? Like right, very critical, yeah. right? Um, so um, if you listen to Toby Keith, you're a real American if you go off to war. But if you listen to the Dixie Chicks, you're a real American if you support the troops like uh, you heard in Traveling Soldier yeah. there. Uh, one of the most beautiful songs I know. Um, and then I think it's just good to mention right here that um, George W. Bush said to the Canadian Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien, um, you're either with us or you're against us. And Jean Chrétien kept Canada of Iraq. And to me, he's my favorite Prime Minister for that reason. Um so talking about the Dixie Chicks reminded me, Matt, of, uh, now I don't know the name of the artist here, but uh, she appeared on SNL and she famously uh, had a photo of the Pope. Oh, and a baldy? A baldy artist? A, Female with no hair? I, nothing uh, compares, nothing compares to you. Right. Yeah, Sinead O'Connor, bro. The Sinead, Irish, uh, the right. Irish revolutionary. That's right. <laughs> oh, one of my favorites, man. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing her up. <laughs> Thank you for the, thanks for the song, Matt. But, no, no worries. No worries. Sinead she lives. <laughs> I'd hate it when Matt sings. Um, so, but Sinead O'Connor, uh, her career basically tanked after she, um, was recorded on SNL doing that. Right. And yeah, for sure. Let's go back to the beginnings and we have official and unofficial censorship. The Dixie's Chicks were not officially censored. No, they were not officially no. banned. They were not officially outlawed. But unofficially, their career kind of did tank. Yeah, for sure. And the same thing with Sinead O'Connor. Her career went nowhere after she did that. She offended the morality. She offended the religion of her base. And, and these weird, things yeah. uh, stopped people from buying her records. Exactly. And she's an Irish artist, right? And she was very, she liked like Bono and U2 in the 80s. They were very critical and um, did a lot of political music, but... Um, that one move for some reason, the Pope of all people, yeah. and it just, it was just too much. Right. And we're going to see from an example in just a sec, after we listen to a couple more clips here, um, 
but you don't have to be officially censored and restricted to be completely blackballed from an industry. So what we want to play here for you is um, a quick clip from uh, the Dixie Chicks when they appeared in London at the same venue in 2006, right? So this is um, three years after their original statements, um, and you can tell that enough time has passed that a lot of the crowd is very much in support of their message of being anti-Bush and anti-war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then we are going to finish off this segment with... One of my favorite songs is a great, like, rage-singing song. It's called Not Ready to Make Nice. It's also from 2006. So I was wondering if we can play the statement from the concert and then the finish off with the song. Uh, well, it's great to be back at uh, Shepherd's Bush. The return to the scene of the crime. And all week, um, the only thing people keep asking is, what are you going to say? Do you know what you're going to say? And as usual, I uh, didn't plan anything, but I thought I'd say something brand new and just say, just so you know, we're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. So Matt, we're nearing the end, but we did say that we were going to talk about something that is in everyone's newsfeed, NFL and Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a perfect example, again, of um, where the 
it's not an official censorship or official restriction, but man, that guy is blackballed from the NFL. Yeah. And yeah, it is kind of interesting that you see a network here, the network of the NFL owners banding together, colluding, mind you, yeah. to keep this man out of the NFL. And, and he could be a starter on maybe half the teams right now. Yeah. Now, I don't have too much to say about it because I think um, we have started the works to uh, join the Skip and Josh podcast yeah. uh, to talk about politics and sports. And I, I'm pretty sure the Colin Kaepernick case and the whole taking a knee during the anthem in the NFL is going to come up. It has to. It's They will. It will. Um, so I don't have too much to, to preempt that. But in light of censorship, banning, and uh, you know, basically restrictions on free speech, this case is really interesting because nowhere in the NFL rulebook does it say that you have to do something particular when the flag and the anthem is being played? You, okay, you know what's really interesting, man? Like three weeks ago, they made an amendment to the NFL rulebook saying that you have to like sh- sort of like vaguely re- show respect for the flag right. or not disrespect the flag. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm sorry, I just wanted. But when but when Kaepernick started, that rule wasn't there. No, right. No. And he was showing his solidarity in the same way that the Black Panthers were in the 1970s, 1960s which was taking a knee, raising a fist, doing these sorts of things, right? Yeah. And it's um, it's a form of nonviolent protest, right? Of course it is. And I heard this on Dave Zarin, um, the sports show that we both love. Um, he apparently, Colin Kaepernick, uh, uh, went and spoke to uh, a veteran uh, before he decided to take the knee and said, should I sit? Should I just not be out on the field? Like, what right. is the appropriate response? He's like, why don't you take a knee? Yeah. Because um, sitting will offend people, not being there will offend people. But if you take a knee, it's almost like you're paying homage to the servicemen and women. And you are also um, making a political message. Now, something I want to pick up with, uh, with Skip and Josh is that this um, protest has been co-opted by both sides, right? Um, it, it's not about... Uh, the military or the military industrial complex is about Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and the incarceration of African Americans. Yeah. And if you don't hear police brutality in an explanation of why NFL players today are taking a knee, then it is um, fake. And yeah. I'm going to use that word. Yeah, it fake is news. fake yeah. fake news. It's absolutely That's fake not news. what it's about. It has nothing to do with the military. It has nothing to do with the flag or patriotism. Yeah. And um, if you remember, this is just popped in my head, but if you remember the um, Night of the Museum episode, I gave a shout out to Darnell Nurse. And this is a different kind of protest that he did, but he instigated the um, use of pride uh, tape, like rainbow tape on the hockey yep. sticks. Yeah. And he is, um, uh, let's just say, visible minority, like... Uh, um, of color, like a yeah. uh, person of color. Yes. Thank you. Um, so these, like for me, sports is always political. And anytime pe- someone asshole like Donald Trump, I don't care. I'm Canadian. I'm allowed to say that, um, comes out and says, just get your ass back out there and do your job or you're going to be fired. It's like, screw you, man. Don't you know what happened with Muhammad Ali? Don't you know yeah. what happened yeah. in the 72 Olympics with the raising of the black power yeah. fist? Like Sports have always been political shit. Even the Soviet Union yes. used sports as a political yeah. mechanism. And even China, shit, everybody yeah. does. So to say that sports should not be political and that you should just go out and play your game, that is at least restricting a lot of free expression. Yep. Um, but soon we're going to talk about sports and politics. Yeah, let's save some for sports. And uh, <laughs> why or why not we want to talk about the politics and sports on shows like we do. Yeah. But um, to end us, Matt, you have a song already yes. picked out. 
Yeah. What this, is it? Okay, so this is another Dixie Chicks song. It's my personal, like one of my favorite country songs and has a special place in Mel and my heart. We used to listen to it all the time when we were in the early stages of our dating career. So uh, this is Tonight, The Heartaches on Mine by the Dixie Chicks. And when we come back, we have some recommendations for you. Welcome back to the show. We have some recommendations for you, as we do every week. <laughs> Matt, kick us off. Okay, and we also have a house full of contractors, so that's what you're hearing in the background. Um, I have two books, and they're both about academic writing, and they're my favorites. Um, the first one is by Beth Louie, L-U-E-Y, and it's called The Handbook for Academic Authors. And that's I have the third edition, um, and the subtitle is How to Choose a Publisher, Negotiate a Contract, Submitting to Journal Articles, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's Beth Louie, Handbook for Academic Authors, and I got the third edition. And the other book on for academic publishing is Kate L. Turnabain, T-U-R-A-B-I-A-N. And I have the sixth edition. This is um, like a classic. It's called A Manual for Writers of Term Papers, Theses, and Dissertations. Oh, nice. And I am looking right across at my yep, co-host. I'm- and I'm just about to say I need that book. And I'm leaving them both with Phil. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I needed that. Uh, my recommendation this week is a podcast, Hello Life WTF. It is phenomenal. It is great. Uh, it is put on by Lindsay and Perry Johnson, uh, who are both very active on Twitter and social media, and they've kind of become podcasting pals. I'm oh, gonna, really? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that out there. Cool. Perry's a good guy. And he, you know, I just got to say, Hashtag Perry's got jokes. So uh, he'll get that. Um, We have a promo, but before we air their promo, I just want to say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, they've, you know, they put on a show um, where they, you know, try to be funny sometimes, but some of the stuff that they tackle really isn't funny at all. And they do it in um, the most, you know, comforting Southern hospitality way um, possible. Um, you know, they've made me realize some stuff about my own relationship. Interesting. Um, by talking about it, I think it's good. I don't think we need to, I don't think, we, we, we don't live in a world today where we can keep our emotions bottled up inside, especially oh, yeah, man. especially when you live and breathe the same air as your partner day in, day out, and, you know, you might have kids with them. Problems arise. And, you know, this show has really opened my eyes to that. It's not problems with just me or my wife. 
It's not problems with just my close friends, their relationships. You know, these sorts of things, these struggles are things that everyone kind of goes through at certain moments. You know, be it death, uh, you know, be it, you know, uh, just, you know, the bickering that can happen in a relationship. Mm -hmm. But, you know, deep down, there's love. And, you know, Perry and Lindsay show that. And they show it in a really, really good way through their podcast. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of sentimental shout yeah. out to them. This is um, sentimental. I think as I've ever heard Phil get, I thought you were about to cry there, man. So, uh, this yeah. is a really timely one for me as well. Um, for me and my wife as well. I think I need to start listening to a few more relationship podcasts after Violet's been born. So, uh, thanks for that recommendation as well, Phil. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm going to close it with their promo, but you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S I M underscore P O D. We have a Facebook page. Uh, you can follow us there. It's at the Simpod. You can email us semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Uh, you can subscribe to the show. All the archives of the show, including our bonus material and our patio sessions are found at the sim.podbean.com. Uh, after the promo, we're going to leave you with some nice music. Thank you all. And talk to you next week. Hey everyone, I am Perry Johnson. I am Lindsay Johnson. We host Hello Live WTF, a weekly podcast where we discuss relationships, parenting, marriage, death, life, uh, health, and all the WTF that comes with it. And we have a very blunt opinion about things. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. And Stitcher. And SoundCloud. Uh, Podknife. And of course. We'd love to get to know you better, so join us on Facebook or Twitter at Hello Live WTF. And remember, you, you decide, decide what, what the F, F is for. for. Hey, this is Adam Nutter. And this is Greg Trout. Come check out our podcast, Nerds with Words. Adam and I talk about pop culture, comedy, comic books, movies, conspiracies. We're both comedians and we might make you laugh. Every week we welcome a guest from the entire spectrum of pop culture and science and comedy. You can follow us on Twitter at Nerds with Words 1. Yeah.